You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. The Kaohsiung Port Terminal just opened this week on March 6th, and I had a chance to speak with Jesse Reiser and Nanako Umamoto, the architects behind its design. They are the team that also designed the Taipei Music Center, which opened on September 5th, 2020. We spoke about their 35-year-long careers in architecture, how they landed both of these projects in Taiwan, the inspiration behind the design of the projects, and what contributed to delays in completion. Both projects were expected to be completed and in operation by 2014. Also with us when we spoke was Jasmine Lee, the project manager for the Taipei Music Center and Kaohsiung Port Terminal Projects at RUR Architecture. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by NATOA, the North America Taiwanese Women's Association. NATOA was founded in 1988, and its mission is 1. To evoke a sense of self-esteem and enhance women's dignity. 2. To oppose gender discrimination and promote gender equality. 3. To fully develop women's potential and encourage their participation in public affairs. 4. To contribute to the advancement of human rights and democratic development in Taiwan. 5. To reach out and work with women's organizations worldwide to promote peace for all. To learn more about NATOA, visit their website, www.natwa.com. Without further ado, here's our interview. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. We're delighted to be here. Great. So thinking about where we should start here, it's always interesting to me why people end up doing the things that they do. And I'm wondering if you could share how it is that you chose a career in architecture. How did you get on this path? How do I say this? I have a long way to come to the architecture because originally I was very simply wanted to study interior design. I went to art school, and then somehow I didn't get it, because it's very complicated. Wow. So I went to urban design school. In that class, we had landscape and urban design, city planning, and also interior design. So we, I did everything all oh. together in four years. Mm-hmm. And then the, when I was trying, I was studying those issues, and the more and more I felt like I wanted design. I want to go to architectures. So okay. when I finished that, I was always working as a freelance person as a student to work for the interior design or architecture firm. And the way I finished that, I only can get product design job in the product design because I didn't have an architectural background. And then they don't take me in the urban planning or landscape because I'm a because you had to carry heavy soil and things. Oh, I see. Yeah, labor intensive. I found my professor was the most famous landscape artist. Oh. I plant a job designing product design, like furniture and the interior sushi bars and things like that. Oh, wonderful. At time, I had other job doing under my professor in Tokyo. Job simultaneously. Wow. Okay. So it was an evolution. Yeah. So when, after two years, I decided to come to U.S. to study architecture, but first I went language, and I didn't know which school I should go, and somebody suggested to go to Cooper Union. But I thought, oh, wow, Cooper Union must be some kind of phobia school. <laughs> I thought it was very easy to get in. And in fact, that was the most difficult school to get in. Really? I got in there as a transfer student. Huh? I had a previous degree already. And then that was really difficult because of language is so competitive mm-hmm. and so many subjects I had to study because I didn't have an architecture. So I had to take four years of structure class. Wow. Design. Yeah. And then last year, I had to take a two design class, two structure class, 
do of everything because mm-hmm. I graduated in three years. Normally, wow. I spent four years at the Oh, traffic. my goodness. So I managed to finish everything. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. And while I was doing that, I was doing some kind of a part-time job mm-hmm. for Dish's mother. Uh-huh. She's an architect. Uh-huh. But I had already background of doing working drawing. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't so difficult for me. Okay. But once I began to work for her, lots of her clients wanted me to design the landscape. So I was working for her, but at the same time I had to do landscape design, swimming for the gigantic site. So mm-hmm. But I can see you have a good background to do that too. Yeah, yeah. So I wasn't scared of any of these big projects. <laughs> At the same time, Jesse was doing pro, like object in the garden. Oh, okay. Big object. So you guys can work together. My background, I was immersed in architecture. I couldn't escape architecture. My mother, <laughs> as Manico mentioned, is an architecture still practicing at 95. Yeah, I don't know if I ever made a conscious choice, actually, <laughs> go into architecture school or was simply expected. And I had second thoughts as well. After the first year, mm-hmm. I actually transferred out of the architecture program mm-hmm. into the art program. Mm-hmm. And they happily did it, but then I never actually went through with it. I kept mm-hmm. persisting. And it got more and more interesting as the years progressed, still thesis, and that was a lot of fun. But it was a struggle. Cooper is and was a really tough school because it's free education. Mm -hmm. And so the sense was also that if you weren't making the grade, you were just, you were out. Uh, It's gotten Mm -hmm. a little softer, I think, these days, Mm -hmm. but yeah, Mm -hmm. it's part of the competitive atmosphere that Nanako talked about. I went to Cranbrook and studied with well-known architect as well, Danny Liebeskin, before he became a building architect. How would you say things have evolved in your 35-year career? I can't imagine. What were things like when you started out, and how would you compare that with people who are starting out now? I think it's night and yeah, Very different. Yeah. Perspective from within the discipline of architecture and the world has changed. One of the things I think that we all encountered in our careers was the advent of the digital and computerization. And because we taught very early on, Ko and I collaborated and worked for about five years until 1991. And then there was a recession and suddenly there was no money. And so that's when we started teaching. There were no jobs to be had for young firms and then look for alternatives, but got into teaching and then realized that we really loved it. But it was something that we actually avoided because we were doing independent work. We were publishing work. People were interested in our work and then they all thought it was a natural thing we should teach and we were avoiding it like play. Right. We were able to do it, keep it up for five years until we had to start pulling nickels and quarters out of the jar (laughs) to keep going. So yeah, what I'm leading to is that we somehow overlapped. We had traditional training, pre-digital. And then when we started teaching, particularly at Columbia University, was when all that digital kind of theory and all of the technology arrived in schools of architecture. And at first, we were very excited by the possibilities of using those tools. And we were part of a whole generation that became known for that, even though it, we, in fact, were never digital. We were working with people who could do it. That's still the case. But yeah, that, it was, that was one of the major kind of watershed moments, I think, for architecture. Right. And our particular slant was to make it a creative and artistic endeavor. It's really mm-hmm. the art of architecture, not so much the pure technological side. Sure. We saw the possibilities there because both Nanako and I, in a way, very traditionally trained, almost trained as crafts. And so there was that possibility to bring that level of, I don't know, complexity, but also beauty to architectural design, which was prior to that, 
very limited biotechnology. So for us, it was more from that side, from the creative, that, that we saw possibilities. And that's what, in a way, leads to the work we're doing today. And we did a lot together in the okay. beginning. The reason why we stopped collaborating each other was that Jessica flew the Rome. So I went with him to Rome. Okay. And then we didn't want to go in nothing that looking side of things. <laughs> and then luckily the Aldoroshi started being fast Biennale. It was an open Biennale. Typically mm-hmm. they would invite very established people, but Rossi, who I actually worked for twice, I worked for him while I was in school and then oh. after Rome. Mm-hmm. decided to make it an open Biennale. So we spent the year, really, that was our first collaboration, was for a project for a villa in the Veneto, which included villa and the gardens. So it seemed like when you started out and from your training that a lot of the things that you do, you would say, are analog, like actually physically creating miniature models of projects that you're working on. Right. And that's a factor of the time in which you reigned. And so these days is completely different. I imagine there's probably a lot of 3D printers involved mm-hmm. or like digital aspects. So that that's why you're saying it's like night and day. Is that right? No, actually, no? what we found exciting and I think okay. what sustained our work for the past, whatever, 30 plus years was the intersection between the analog and the digital way that we could work in physical models and drawings. And we were able then to, uh, through those technologies, rationally enlarge them to the building scale so that there's a really interesting intersection between the crafted model and the crafted building, which wouldn't happen typically if you were just working purely computational. So I guess what I'm getting at is the gap between someone with your training, since you have 35 years of experience, versus somebody who is freshly graduated uh-huh. entering into the field of architecture, I'm just wondering what would the gap be there then? For example, at the Cooper Union, it was about science and art. So everybody, as Natico said, would do at least four years of engineering. Mm-hmm. But you also have the opportunity to do figure drawing for four or five years. And so that kind of training really affects the way you conceive of design and form. With the computer, you actually get into issues in literal figurality of buildings. It isn't just the training of the eye and the hand that actually literally would affect the way you thought about architectural form making. You could bring that level of expression, Michelangelo esque expression could be brought into building, which Mm. was, to me, super exciting. Building conceived of as a living thing, as a body. Yeah, it's very interesting to me. I'm not sure if I'm opening a can of worms by saying this, but I've talked to some people that I know who are architects, and they've said that it's a challenging career path and that perhaps it was their experience, but it seemed Mm -hmm. like lots of architects don't actually get to really realize an entire project because what usually ends up happening is that they're on a project and they're working on some aspect or some part Mm -hmm. of the project. In other words, like whether it's a building or a bridge or some kind of structure, they're just part of the team. But in our case, we had years of years of doing competition, but we enjoy so much. So we couldn't wait to do more petitions. Yeah, please tell me about that. Because Nanako was trained in Japan, I was also trained in Europe where Mm -hmm. competitions were particularly like in Italy or they were more the norm. They've almost vanished actually, even here. Mm. Um, But because it was a kind of coincidence of a number of things because we were teaching and working and then got into the pattern of doing competitions along with colleagues. So we would compete with colleagues on competitions. Most of the early ones, none of us won. (laughs) But it was also something that, yeah, I know, it was exciting because we were in academics. All of those competition projects were published and we would write about. Mm -hmm. So it became also a kind of syndrome (laughs) doing it. 
And so that then, you know, we ultimately won those competitions at Taiwan in very close succession, having done 15 or 20 years of, without literally building, but you just pushed on and on. Yeah. It was a very pe- peculiar career, let's say. It wasn't yeah. the norm. But why also did we started doing competition? That was, no, actually competition, originally we are doing lots of open competitions, knowing that we don't win. And then as we time passed by and for 10 years, gradually got into invited competition. The work became known and that people were interested in having us compete. Oh, in interesting. So yeah, it was a, that, that was our route. Okay. Yeah. But that then enabled us to get into a project. And then these were very ambitious projects. We actually, you know, got to do them. And of course, I have to say all of the building projects we worked with very good local architects of record. It wasn't just us. It was a great. Right. Dubai Tower also towers competition. We are invited by our ex student. But he's very well known architects now. And then they had this competition of huge tower. So we are invited, we competed with Zaha and Tommy. Ram Kohlhaus. And we are the young ones. That's how, and then we went few competitions with them in Dubai. And then one of the developers liked our work. And then he finally gave us this tower project. What? Yeah, it was a, again, I think. With that big tower project in mm-hmm. by, it was actually won by Zaha Hadid, but then the young developer who was running the competition liked our proposal and he went off on his own. He was part of a big group called Dubai Properties. He went off on his own and they asked us to do his first independent project. That tower was gotten indirectly through a competition. And ultimately right. they didn't build Zaha's tower. But Why don't we ask Asmi? She has a different feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't want to be an architect. That's quite a straight line. Yes, my parents were, I grew up in an architect family as well. My father was one of the architects who designed the Earth Central Libraries in Taipei across oh. from the Shanghai Shen Memorial oh, Hall. Okay. My mom had a significant portfolio in the Shenzhen Science Park and others. So I grew up in an office. I was aware that being an architect involved a lot of quick decision-making. And those decision-making actually leads to significant public and financial consequence. Hmm. And I thought that it was too heavy a career. So I didn't want to do that. And then gradually I realized a good design space could potentially have this power of like mental healing. And hmm. all of a sudden being an architect means a lot. I was an American student in graduate school, and both of them teach me how to think intuitively, and I think that was the biggest pressure, uh, architecture career for me, right? That's pretty powerful what you said about spaces could have a healing aspect to it. That struck me. I'm just curious, is there something? experience that gave you this thought? Did you go to a space that affected you that you realized that it could be because the way that space is designed or this experience of the space could actually have a positive impact or something like that? That Actually, that could be my parents' trick. (laughs) (laughs) Now I think about it. It could be a trick. Yes, they, they took me. There was a multiple trip. They took me to the famous church, very well-designed museum, designed commercial space even. And like the scale of space, like how the light penetrates the space, that actually will give you very concert scene. That was a grand hotel in Taipei where people really admire the bar. Yeah. Triple space height and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I think it's quite similar to that. Mm-hmm. And also it's the combination of color, the light and shadow, right. solid and opaque. I think those are the characters that I prefer. Right. I wanted to talk to you about your two most notable projects in Taiwan, the Taipei Music Center and the Kaohsiung Port Terminal. So I- I'm picking up from what we discussed earlier that you were able to 
do these projects through some kind of competition. Is that what happened? Yes. But the second competition we did in Taiwan. First one was Irish Mountain Project, and we won. But because of they lost the site with washed up typhoon, it was landslide. Oh, so, yes, because I saw that on your website. So are you saying you did it, but then it got destroyed because of the mudslide? Yes. Oh, yeah. that's terrible. I think Sorry. there were also changes that went from a public project Mm-hmm. And then the rail line became privatized. Mm. And so shame. after the disaster on the site, I think they, I don't know where they are now with the development, but mm. what the lasting part of it was a master plan, which we created for Alishat for the whole railroad line. I'm not sure how much of it ultimately will get implemented, but it was an important project for us. Because it wasn't just about architecture, but it was about creating the whole landscape and agriculture and all of the paths and so forth for tourists. Um, and that was true, actually, of all of the projects in Taiwan. They were mm-hmm. both planning projects and architecture projects. Mm-hmm. And I think that was something that was designed even prior to the competitions being created that they were very smart in Taiwan, the way they formulated the competitions. Hmm. They got very good architects and a lot of expertise together to create three competitions, certainly that we were involved in. So the music center, I think, was in planning for six years prior hmm. to the choice of the architects to compete. Yeah. So I see. It was a really concerted effort, which you don't find in the States. And there was a very unique set of competitions that happened that were part, what, Jasmine, that national initiative in Taiwan, want to talk about. I think it's somewhere, like, now I need to look at closely into history, but on top mm-hmm. of my habits in the early 2000s, what governments have this post-industrial kind of push for new development mm-hmm. so that they started to initiate these cultural or mm-hmm. infrastructural projects that Taiwanese economy potentially transfer from like that vector focus to something oh. or take a step further from that. Cultural or yeah. There were very deliberate choices of competitors too. They didn't choose architects who were necessarily well established, but they knew okay. what everyone was working on around okay. the world. The network, the intelligence network in Taiwan <laughs> was going full blast and that they handpicked people to compete. Mm-hmm. Then young offices oh. do some of these projects. That's very strategic. So let's talk about the Taipei Music Center. What was the inspiration behind that? And what did they tell you in the competition? What were they asking you to present to them? Or what were they looking for? But that project changed a lot. Yeah, I know. Because on Instagram, was only like 3,000 audience. Then after two years, they changed their mind. We became 5,000 people's audience theater. So we had to change the I think what motivated the whole project was government's recognition of the music industry yes. of Taiwan. And I guess it's among the oldest after the Japanese, I think. And there was a sense of pressure from upstart countries, Korea, the mainland, or the whole upsurge of East Asian music. Mm-hmm. And if they wanted to something capable, but the Chinese asked, they all. Right. To create a part of the city dedicated to the music industry, mm-hmm. both to turn out new groups, but also performance and recording. And I guess in Taipei, there were widely separated producers all over the city. And the ambition was to bring everyone together and to really almost brand a piece of city towards music. What our response first was to insist that it be a fully public place. I think that was one of the things that kind of characterized our 
proposals, the early one and then what happened later. Many of the competitors, because of the very strict codes about noise and so forth, Mm -hmm. put the so-called public performance space in a building. They consolidated Mm -hmm. everything in a mega building. Okay. And we chose to spread all of the um, functions of the music center over the whole site and to make it porous so the general public could use it on an everyday way and that it could also be shifted to becoming various venues for performance, say, in the evening. It sounded to me like the concept part of it was to centralize the music industry or to encourage development in the music industry. So do you think that the Taipei Music Center that we have today is serving that purpose? And does it have state-of-the-art equipment and all that kind of stuff? I think it does. I think we are definitely seeing continuous social media about the events in and around the Music Center. So I think it's really working. So it's the indoor theater and also outdoor theater. Yeah. And also the industrial that can produce a lot of new music. Various sizes of venues from very intimate clubs. I think there are like five, four, excuse me, mm-hmm. four live houses, depending upon the size of the group and the audience and so forth. So it's really, there are a lot of opportunities for different scales of performance. So tell me, how long did it take to complete? Nanako mentioned that it changed a lot and it evolved over time. It took us more than 10 years. Wow. Officially, it started 2009. Okay. 2010 from the competition phase. And then officially finished in 2021. Wow. Is that unusual for it to take that long or is that usual? Because I'm not in this field at all, so I have no idea. I think it's on the long end. I think the average cultural project might be around eight years back. This one stretched and we basically had to start over. So the competition scheme was mainly generated by the Ministry of Culture mm-hmm. and I guess the local, the government mm-hmm. type A. And there's some federal too. But then what really precipitated the big shift was when the music industry got involved. Uh, the Ministry of Culture, they were hedging their bets too. They weren't certain if the music center would, you know, function continuously. And so all of the competitors were asked to design a kind of hybrid main hall that could handle Broadway-type shows as well. But once the music industry came in, it was all about music and all about that kind of production. It wasn't a kind of dual-purpose venue, which never really works well for music and doesn't really work that well for Broadway shows either, so kind of a compromise design scheme. But once it went to the industry, that it was a very straightforward but larger auditorium. It went from, what, Zanuck was at 3,000, 5,000 seats. So, yeah, we really had to go back to the drawing board for that. And then there was a lot of public interaction as well. And also from local architects, there was resistance from certain quarters about what we had planned for, not the main hall, but the long site. We originally had proposed a robotic stage moved along the long site and would handle various scales of performance. I guess there's so many people involved. The government is part of that. So Mm -hmm. to get the agreement is not that easy. Yeah. And also, there was a financial issue, actually. The project originally was too expensive, mm-hmm. so it took a couple of times of public bidding in order to find somebody who was willing to do it. And that also accounted into the delay of the overall constructions. But we're generally we're really happy about what's coming out, and it's definitely worth it. To, yeah. We were so lucky to complete this project, even if it took us more than 10 years. Mm-hmm. Because I remember a lot of people had a project in Taiwan and they got all canceled. So we are the only people who survived. 
And now for a short break. Hello, listeners. I'm excited to share that we have a donor who has offered Talking Taiwan a matching donation of $5,000. That means when we raise $5,000, it will be automatically doubled to $10,000. So this is the time for you to make a contribution to Talking Taiwan and help us raise $10,000. You can make a contribution to Talking Taiwan on GoFundMe.com, Patreon.com, forward slash Talking Taiwan, or PayPal and Zelle using our email address TalkingTaiwanPodcast at gmail.com. Or if you're old school, just send us a check to our mailing address, which you'll find on our website at TalkingTaiwan.com forward slash support. All of our donors will get exclusive first listening access to my interviews with Kevin Lin, one of the co-founders of Twitch and current co-founder and CEO of MetaTheory. The Boba Guys, co-founders Andrew Chow and Bin Chen. Chin Chi Yang, a multidisciplinary artist who has been inducted into the New York Foundation for the Arts Hall of Fame. And Michelle Huo, an attorney, activist, and author of Reading with Patrick, which is a runner-up for the Dayton Literary Peace Prize and the Goddard Riverside Stephen Russo Book Prize for Social Justice. We'd like to thank our first donor of the year, the Greater New York Region Overseas Taiwanese Pen Club, and all of our supporters. Now, back to the episode. Among the only other, other projects. There's quite a few, like the stadium or the dome, which has had a lot of issues and different things. Yeah. Performing Arts Center ran into difficulties. I think one part of it was that there were great ambitions from the organizers. Mm -hmm. But then I think many of the problems, I think, were financial. They got really top-flight architectural designs, and naturally that kind of work is not cheap. I think there were some conflicts, too, between what the actual budgets and then the ambitions of the architects and the, mm -hmm. the designs they created. And so I think, like Jasmine said, we were really fortunate that our local architects were really creative, I think, in working back and forth with the city in the way of like restructuring the contract. Parts of the hall, the music center could be built as separate contracts. The technology budget was huge, almost the same as the architecture. Wow. And one of the great innovations, I think, was the separation of that technology budget from the architectural budget. Yeah. So get some architecture there. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of creative work, a lot of navigating and politics, which we <laughs> weren't even a part of, really, that allowed that project to happen, to make it real. Yeah, I mean, it, also because Taiwan is really a young and vibrant democracy uh -huh. and people have opinions. And so that was also part of the process. It wasn't right. a kind of totalitarian approach that you might find in the mainland where a central government will just lay the law down. This was really active democracy in progress. And so we had to field those questions and navigate a lot of different interest groups. And adjust accordingly. And adjust yeah. and find ways of meeting the strength of the project when there were changes. And that's, uh -huh. that's part of the role of the architect, too, to yes. not be so dogmatic that there are a lot okay. of ways of doing things. And it yeah. actually got more exciting, I think. It sounds like it would challenge you creatively to think about how do you execute this or how do you factor mm -hmm. in something that needs to be taken into consideration. Uh, the Music Center people are really experts in their field. Yeah. And so they taught us. We learned how a red carpet works and how many <laughs> things were lined up and what really happens. And so it was a lot of fun working back and forth with them. They were very respectful, which was great, which we wouldn't find in the United States necessarily. <laughs> they respected the design, but they also had great ideas and they informed us what they needed and we worked back and forth with them. They're artists too. Now they, you know, the people yeah. we were working with weren't just bureaucrats, they mm -hmm. were creatives. So it was fun. But they are all very young people too. Not yeah. all. But young musicians. But speaking of the red carpet, is there going to be any connection to the Golden Horse Awards? Are they going to be hosted there or? 
I believe they already have some kind of golden awards happening in the center. Um, perhaps it was like golden music award or melody okay. award, something like that. And of course, like depends on what kind of activities or events they really, like Justin said, they really creatively use the architecture to make it something really significant. The Taipei Music Center opened on September 5th, 2020. And on October 3rd, the 31st Golden Melody Awards were hosted there. Can we talk a little bit about what inspired the design and talk about how the building came to be in terms of all the different spaces and what it looks like aesthetically? Yeah, there were a lot of inputs because <laughs> it is a complex project. So it yeah. was never really ruled by one idea, but I think... We made some very basic decisions at the beginning, as I mentioned earlier, not to consolidate all of the functions in one mega building, but to really think of the project as a little piece of city, of urban fabric, and credit certain ideas from one of my teachers and employers, Aldo Rossi, who was an Italian architect who was very active in the 1980s who had really wonderful ideas about urban space and how functions work in an urban way. The idea of a kind of large circus-like space in the project comes from the inspiration of Rossi, although we were thinking of that space both as a kind of public meeting place and where you would shop and all of that, but also would kind of work if almost going back in time, a Roman circus. And those were the two big functions that we wanted to see happen in the space, that it would be both an everyday place for people to shop and use, and then it could be converted into a big performance space when that was necessary. So we really deliberately broke up a lot of the functions on the site. So the main hall occupies a big site across the road, the architecture of the ground, what we call the kind of ground architecture, became a kind of base for iconic buildings. The main hall sits on an artificial hill, but also has a kind of service, mainly service functions in that hill as well. All of the back of house functions feed into this landscape form. And then the public functions roughly are located within the object that sits on that hill. And we did similar things with the cubic building, which was called the Industry Shell. It has mm -hmm. the Museum and Hall of Fame and other functions of archive-like functions in it. But the idea was that these object buildings would orient the visitor as well. They would be immediately recognizable. You would see the three major functions of the music center as discrete objects sitting on mm -hmm. this built horizon. And then you would see in the far distance, the nature, those hills that go into Taipei, which is so unique. It's certainly something you never see in a place like New York. That kind of connection back to the natural landscape was something that was really important to us to bring out and enhance. And what are the three functions of the music center that you mentioned? The main hall which is the main performance, internal performance hall for 5,000 people. And then what a big hall. Just a cube-like building, and they have exhibition galleries. And like Basically, it was developed to showcase the history of Mandarin and Taiwanese pop music. I believe they have two different kind of exhibitions going on, like, all the time, this right now as well. And the other one is called the Industry Shell, or I think the official name these days are a creative hub or something like that. Basically, it's building for recording studio production facilities. And I think there will be two restaurants in the top floors. Those, in a way, symbolize the three major functions of the music center. Performance, mm -hmm. the history, and then production. I understand that you could go in. This was not so much with the industry shell, but with the main yeah. hall that it is a, a rental hall too, right? Yeah, I think you would have some proposal about the performance and they review it. And it's like any of the yeah. venues. That was apparently one of the things at the scale, the 
5,000 seat scale of venue was something that was missing in Taipei. Okay. And it was interesting too that we were told that if you had, I don't know, a Madonna visits Taipei, she would perform in a stadium in a okay. really large hall. But this is in a way close to the scale of Radio City. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's to give a context. Is there anything else you'd like to share about the Taipei Music Center project? I think one of the other interesting things that we didn't anticipate, we knew it in the competition that, and in the way we did boards to illustrate it, that this should be, and this was required too, that it be an iconic project. And so our best guess in 2000. 10, whatever, 9 or 10, was that it would be something that would be visible like on CNN or China TV or whatever. Yeah. We had no idea what the advent of social media mm -hmm. just caused that center to explode Yeah, in terms of all these different groups. Influencers mm -hmm. would mm -hmm. put themselves in front of it, various commercial car companies. There's a constant kind of flow of material on social media that we didn't expect. So it, was, it became, it was literally amplified. That's great. You know, that change. Okay. So you also worked on the Kaohsiung Port Terminal and that was also through a competition? It was, okay. yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was a surprise win. Really? Yes. Why? Was oh, it a lot of stiff competition? We never thought we can get two projects. Yeah. Good enough, and then we are shocked we want another one. Yeah, in very quick succession. Yeah. It was a surprise for us, that one. That's great. So tell uh, me about that project. How long has that project taken, and what went into the thinking of the design there? I think it totally took us 13 years. Wow. I, I didn't know about that, but the one of the person who worked on that project originally told us it, it took us 13 years. It was all absorbing. It started 2010, the competition phase, and mm -hmm. then we're going to celebrate the opening in the next couple of weeks, which is 2023. It's like yeah. 13 years. Yeah. Um, the reason that it takes so long is because, of course, you know, the detailed design, those areas, it, it took time. But mm -hmm. I think the part that actually made the product quite interesting is that once we started construction and I think the 14 and then we realized that the there were significant oil pollutions in the ground and nobody knew about that. And so that we had to stop the construction immediately, start remediation and the construction we started 2016. Oh it took, wow. It took them a while. Two or three years, yeah. Yeah, they had to clean up. up. And because I teach, I started doing research on the site beyond the site materials and mm -hmm. we found out, you know, that Kaohsiung was highly developed as a port, particularly during the Japanese colonization of Taiwan. It was where the Imperial Japanese Navy was based and the site was an oil storage farm from the 1920s onward. So oil had been spilt by Mitsubishi first, and then later, I guess, by China Petroleum. And by the time they did the first kind of work on the foundations, there was literally a lake of standing oil um, that oh had goodness. to be pumped out of the site. It wasn't simply contaminated it was wow. it was a lake of oil which <laughs> is phenomenal yeah. but we basically had to wait for the cleanup and remediation of the site to proceed that was one of the wow. things we faced it's a good thing that got cleaned up <laughs> and that you guys were able to be patient yeah very different circumstances for the port terminal because we were mainly working at least in the beginning with the ministry of transportation it then went over to the cruise ship companies, but they were much more technically oriented. They were engineers. And so they had a very different kind of perspective on the design. We had a natural design, which was done by our former teacher, Israel Sinek, that essentially didn't change. I and mean, he was so expert that the main concept it was there even now, very close to the competition model. 
Uh, even though the exterior didn't really change that much, but since the project dragged so long, 10 years, and then the ship is getting bigger and taller, the office scenario is changing from the analog to more digital flow. Mm-hmm. So that even though with the shell, with the exterior, mm-hmm. predetermined exterior shell, the interior was heavily rethink during the process. And there were also changes of management. And so every time a new head of management came in, they scrapped the plans for the tower and wanted completely new plans for the layouts. And so, yeah, that was also a part of We definitely didn't expect those cruise ships to become so big. Right. So many layers, like seven, eight floors of a ship, which wow. we were not thinking about. It. So we got much larger. Yeah, we had uh, to change the gangway. We had to change how the custom gangways the were designed and built that had to accommodate the new scale of cruise ships. And then the politics internationally have shifted fundamentally. When we started, the expectation was that Kaohsiung would mainly be handling mainland tourists. And I think now it has shifted more towards Japan and other, and within Taiwan, a completely different market than Mm -hmm. originally intended. Interesting. It was also an urban plan to like the music center. So this was interesting because we all, everyone talks about post-industrial cities, but Kaohsiung is far from post-industrial. There's still a (laughs) thriving container port. Yes. So that was a really important factor in the, our design that we, and I think it was one of the reasons why we succeeded, that we really kept the functioning port, let it happen at the ground. Mm. And then there was a desire to create a new edge for the harbor, a public edge for people to visit the harbor and to create a promenade and all of that. And so We work the way architects do in section rather than planning it just on the ground and thinking about multiple uses on a ground level. We created new levels for the edge of Kaohsiung that would serve a kind of public role. So people would be able to walk on an elevated esplanade by the water and look out at the ships and all of the goings on, but not interfere with them. That was a really important factor in the way we worked on the project. So our original scheme actually extended beyond just the port terminal and to all kind of neighboring sites as well. That's great. I'm really excited about this because I used to live in Kaohsiung, so I'd love Mm -hmm. to see it. And are you going to be able to go back for the opening? Because I understand since the pandemic, have you even seen the completed music center and port terminal? Yes, we're going to the opening, which is March 6th. Music Center, we couldn't, they couldn't do the opening because of COVID. So yes. they came to New York to do the opening. We had a, <laughs> an event at Cooper Union oh. to celebrate. But we're dying to visit the center. Yeah. <laughs> so when you're there in March, you can actually see the completed Music Center, right? Finally, mm-hmm. yes. We were, we were present when they did the first test. 2019, and the mayor was there, and he was particularly concerned about the sound levels, and he brought a sound meter with him, (laughs) and they had a successful first performance, but then shortly thereafter, everything shut down, so it was really frustrating (laughs) not to be able to go. Yeah, that's really exciting. And I think you also talked about how some of the projects you worked on were inspired by New York, too. Were there any aspects of the Gaoshan Port Terminal or the Taipei Music Center or any other things that you've done in Taiwan specifically that were inspired by any projects in New York? Yes, I'm glad you reminded me because (laughs) our work, our original work in the 90s really focused in on projects in and around uh, Manhattan. Yes. And we were particularly interested in the edge development of Manhattan, both on, did a 12 mile long proposal for the east side of Manhattan, Mm -hmm. which was funded by the Van Allen Institute. And then we were involved in another competition which was created by the Canadian Center for Architecture that focused on the site that ultimately became Hudson Yards. Okay. 
And so the techniques we brought to Kaohsiung really began through an analysis of New York's Manhattan, these really interesting conditions along the East River with elevated promenade, public mm -hmm. space, and then also the designs we did to, to develop that idea of the sectional zoning came from those, those prior projects uh, that we've been working on. So this was our chance. Kaohsiung was our chance to do it. But I would say that also in the past, we are invited to do the airport in Shenzhen. Mm -hmm. And also we are part of the Opera House. So the organization of uh, the Kaohsiung is very similar to airport. So, so we can directly utilize that organization. Sure. And yeah. then the Sri Rov Theater came from when we are working on the Cardiff Opera Project. So we are always working on that idea for the last 20 years or more. Yeah, so Kaohsiung got the kind of mature version <laughs> of these <laughs> projects that we had been working through for That's many excellent. years. But that, I think that was also something that the people who assembled the juries were aware of because they knew mm -hmm. about the, these projects that all had been not built, but they were published mm -hmm. all over the place. Okay. So they okay. wanted us to be part of that competition for that reason. Yeah. Also, I see that there's quite an impressive array of projects in the selected projects section tab of your website. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit, like since I'm based in New York, I'm interested in some of the things you've done in New York. I see the new museum listed there. Yes, we have one of the competitors. We didn't build it. Sana won the competition, but okay. we were part of the uh, competition. I think most of the work we did in New York was research-based, ultimately. Okay. You could okay. say that they were tied to competitions. The actual built work was on a much more modest scale. Our training, Nanako, through furniture design, and then mm -hmm. my mother's office is mainly residential. But we've done apartments and smaller scale and furniture as well. So mm -hmm. we do everything. We did a lot of landscape. And a lot of landscape projects yes. outside yeah. of the yes. city. How would you say that the fact that you teach impacts the way that you approach architecture projects? So I guess perhaps because you both teach and you actually work on architectural projects, maybe does that allow you to have more space to have this patience to enter competitions and have more time? Yes, so it's that, that we were able, because much of the income for many years came from the teaching and then we had the time and the inclination to do those competitions. So that was very important. In fact, I mean, that as a professor, it's almost a criterion for hiring younger professors that they are involved that way, that it's an opportunity for people doing interesting work to, to teach and also to design, not be immediately absorbed in, say, corporate offices mm -hmm. or doing this for 100 years. But I think, yeah, it's also important because there's a community of people with whom you teach. And so the research being done keeps you abreast of a lot of new ideas and experimentation happens through the design studios as well. You can try out ideas with the students before and see what's working and what's not working before you can bring them outside. Much has been said about design research, but there is some value in it in that, that level. So I guess this isn't quote-unquote typical, like what people think of when they're going to architect school or going to become an architect. This is <laughs> not a typical model, but it's interesting. I'm not sure it's even possible to do it again. The present state of the discipline sure. and of the sure. world, it was a very mm. particular time mm particular figures and teachers, and so yeah. it, it, it's always different. What are some of the other notable projects that you've been involved in in your career? Do you want to talk about any of those? Nanako mentioned a little bit, we were involved in a really experimental and successful project for a tower in Dubai, Yes, which incorporated passive features for cooling, yeah, the chimney effect. It was a concrete perforated concrete shell uh -huh. that shaded this building from the sun, but also did passive cooling. And very different from the typical towers 
in a place like Dubai mm-hmm. where they're mainly steel and glass sort of transplants. But because we had the opportunity to work with a young ex- developer who was willing to take risks, we were able to build that. Where is that tower? What is it called? Can somebody find it? It's called O14. Okay. And it's in Business Bay. Okay. One of the kind of sub-cities of Dubai. We were involved for the development of Ground Zero. We were part of a team called United Architects who did a proposal that ultimately didn't win, but it was very well known at the time for another type of proposal for Ground Zero. Mm-hmm. other younger firms. What is it like seeing your projects literally come to life? Because we went to Soho, you had that mm-hmm. show for your 35 years showing all your projects and you had a lot of like miniature models and things like that. And I'm just wondering, what is it like seeing your projects come to life from the blueprint, from the model it's... to actually seeing it like an actual functioning, larger than life building? What is that like? It's, it blows you away. You just can't. It's a strangest feeling because I think in the office, everyone is staring at either physical models or drawings or computer models and it, it suddenly it's there and it's like a dream you can't it's a very odd <laughs> it's great it's a great feeling but it's also yeah. there's a kind of deja vu also yeah because you've been you're very familiar with this thing but there and there it is and it's huge and it's <laughs> people are using it and it's yeah. you realize it's also left your hands it's no longer your baby Mm-hmm. Your baby has its own life, and mm-hmm. the people who use it have their own lives, and they change it, and it becomes part of life. Yeah, I try to keep my students enthusiastic that they shouldn't let go of the dream. <laughs> and it takes a lot of patience, too, because I'm hearing that sometimes these projects take longer than expected, so it also takes a lot of patience. You have to be willing to be knocked down and get back up. And, you know. <laughs> I think I personally learned a lot of this from my mother, who's yeah. far more energetic than I am. I don't know how she does it, but I wow. think that kind of enthusiasm is what she conveyed to me. And I think all of us have a similar link for it. Nanako or Jasmine, did you want to add anything to that? Your thoughts? My thoughts? I, oh, I love. I really enjoy looking at our old work too. And then I always think, wow, we can change this and that. But at the end of the day, I said, I'm not changing anything. <laughs> the odd thing is you think all of it's built. You become somewhat delusional about it. You're so intensely involved in these projects that you think they exist somewhere. So it's even stranger than to see one that actually got built. Well, if you believe in the parallel universe or whatever, maybe in a different universe it was built, right? (laughs) Or another reality. (laughs) What advice do you have for those interested in becoming an architect or studying architecture? One of the things that has dawned on me recently is that I would tell them that they're going to face a lot of challenges, but in a way... They should hold on to the original enthusiasm that they had because they're going to be told a million reasons why that's the wrong way to think. And so I think that's also a really important thing, that there is something that they had authentically themselves, which may even run against the grain of their education, that they should hold on to no matter what. So (laughs) I think that's really important. That enthusiasm, that initial enthusiasm is actually quite meaningful. Mm -hmm. I think I enjoy teaching because I feel like I'm working with them. Every student's problem becomes my problem. It's not like there are some professors who are more argumentative and angry, (laughs) but I internalize their problems and it becomes my problem. Yeah, I would encourage the newcomer to be willing to try out new things, not only different kind of shape, different color, different composition, but also just to try out different things in life. Because architecture, 
ultimately is the most intimate, to me, is the most intimate uh, hardware that everyone with. Um, so I feel like if, you know, being an architect or an architecture lover, it's very important to mm-hmm. really try to enjoy life, and enjoy the diversity as much as possible mm-hmm. and think intuitively. Yeah, I mean, it's like a symphony. I hate to bring in the old sort of comparisons, but you're moved by it. And that's really important. There is composition and there's a way of looking at it from the direction of the composer as a formal edifice, but it also is something that's got to move you. It's the great art. Thank you. I really want to thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. No, pleasure. It's an honor to be here today. I've been speaking with Jesse Reiser, Nanako Umamoto and Jasmine Lee about the Gaoshan Port Terminal and Taipei Music Center. For those of you who like visuals, we'll be bringing back Jesse, Nanako, and Jasmine to show us the Gaoshan Port Terminal, Taipei Music Center, and other projects. That video will be posted on Talking Taiwan's YouTube channel at a later date. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by Natoa. The North America Taiwanese Women's Association, NATOA, was founded in 1988. To learn more about NATOA, visit their website, www.natwa.com. Now it's time for you to show us some love. We just found out that you can rate us on Spotify. Or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Audible, leave us a review there. It helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There will list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.